A quick note for today's show. We have some technical glitches happening during the recording, so you might hear some words either get very low quickly or cut off completely. We hope you'll be able to make sense of the full conversation around what was going on in context. Thank you so much for listening. Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, where we are exploring practical insight for social change and anti-racism. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Henry, and joining me as my co-host is my homie, Alicia T. Crosby. Alicia, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, and I'm really excited to be with you today. When I say with you, I mean definitely with Dre, but with all of you listeners. <laughs> Hi, y'all. But mostly me. <laughs> yeah, but mostly Dre. Mostly Dre. It's not about you. Um, but yeah, I, we're going to get into some really good conversation. Like the, our conversation this week is going to be a really, really dope one. I mean, we're going to be speaking about incarceration. Dre, like, and as you know, like I call him Dre. Y'all can't. Y'all don't know him like that. But <laughs> Dre, bring us, <laughs> kind of clue us in. Like, you know, we did this incredible interview that we have coming later on in our podcast. Yeah. I just want to know, like, how do we get here? We're going to be speaking about incarceration, but like, why are we speaking about incarceration this week? Right. So uh, we're talking with Dominique Gilliard today. Um, my my brother from another mother, Dominique Gilliard, who wrote the book Rethinking Incarceration and has been doing a lot of work around incarceration. But I actually didn't reach out to Dominique because of the book. I reached out to Dominique because... I've been, you know, following the, gosh, the mass deportation system, the what some people are calling our concentration camp system. And people have been talking about how there's a connection between the concentration camp system, the border situation, and our mass incarceration system in the U.S. Um, mm. So much so that if we were to fight mass incarceration, we could actually also be doing something about the border situation at the same time. And so I had an earlier conversation with Dominique about how, you know, to ask him the question, do ordinary Americans participate in the mass incarceration system? Because the way that we fight it through people power is to determine how we participate so we can withdraw our, uh, so we can withdraw our participation. And Dominique said, absolutely. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, we have to have this conversation on the podcast. So that's why we're talking with Dominique today. That's super awesome. Incarceration means a lot of different things, but I think it's really interesting how you've made the connections between that and, you know, this mass deportation um, crisis. I mean, I think it is a crisis that what we're seeing at the U.S. southern border um, and not exclusively here in the U.S., but this is our social context. Mm -hmm. Um, People are being held. People are being detained um, before being expelled. And so, I mean, you know, those patterns and systems of detention, um, whether they happen within the criminal justice system, whether they happen in, in our immigration system, they're all interconnected. And so I'm really grateful that that we're having this talk with Dominique in order to to just highlight like how these things are interwoven. Mm. But I have a question for you. Okay. So everyone has different entry points into this conversation, right? Yeah. Like the way you and I are speaking about this now or the way that you and Dominique speak about this 
are different because we've you know been having these conversations for a long time. Mm-hmm. But think back, right? Like when you first found out incarceration was a thing. Yeah. Um, like when did you first become aware of of the concept, the premise, the practice of incarceration? And then when did you start caring about it? Right. Because those aren't always the same moment for people. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that we all know, even as kids, like there is such a thing as going to jail, right? And what you think, or what I thought as a kid, like I bet most people thought, is that you go to jail because you did something bad. You know, all that's where the bad people go. Um, and for the most part, I assumed that our criminal justice system did just that. Like they kept us safe by, you know, locking up murderers and folks who have committed violent crimes. But after the death of Philando Castile in 2016, which I know is super late, everybody, I know. Um, but after the death of Philando Castile, I committed myself to learning as much as I can about systemic racism. And I began with Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. And reading about yeah. Brian Stevenson, you know, because he's a legal expert and he's worked in the criminal justice system, he works with people on death row, reading about how different the incarceration system is from what I had assumed, you know, for a long time. It wasn't like I had no idea by the time I read that book, but I had no idea just how different it was and the types of people that end up being Mm -hmm. locked up, how many innocent people are incarcerated. And, you know, the thing that was shocking to me was that, I found out by reading that book that oftentimes the criminal justice system knows that they have the wrong person locked up or the wrong person on death row and they still go through the entire process anyway. Like that was like a a shocking thing to me, how often it happens, but it's just Mm -hmm. not reported. So I think that was the beginning of understanding the way that our, our justice system actually works. What about you? Um, I mean, kind of similar to you, right? I mean, for the system and practices, like when we're kids, right? Because we learn about, you know, cops and jail and, you know, people play cops and robbers. And and sometimes mm-hmm, there's that whole mm-hmm. weird thing where you put somebody in a cardboard box. Like, I know, like I've seen people play those games. <laughs> it's like, ah, you're in jail. It's like, uh. So I think for a lot of us, including myself, like the awareness of what we later understand to be um, these carceral systems is like, it comes pretty early on in life. Um, But I think I started caring when I saw just how, how badly folks were treated by it. Um, Yeah. I had, so in my former life, I worked as an educational advocate and, you know, (laughs) I think about how, my kids interacted with the police and like what it meant for them to be, you know, put in detention for different things. Like, you know, what their experiences mm-hmm. were, how they were treated, the fear, the the injustice around, you know, yeah. around identity, right? Like where some of them would get locked up or detained for different things and their more privileged counterparts, right? Sometimes it was economic privilege that was at play. Sometimes it was racial privileges at play. Um, But those privileged people didn't suffer the same consequences. They weren't detained. They weren't held. They weren't, you know, having their rights bumped up against. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's when I started caring. So I'm going to say maybe for me, that was in 
maybe 2013, 2014. But I mean, that's still a fairly significant uh, amount of life um, to have lived without yeah, being yeah. as invested in the conversation, considering how many millions yeah. of people um, are locked up, are put in cages, like actual cages. Um, but eventually right. I got there. Well, I think that it brings up an, a very interesting point, And that is that we are taught at an early age that putting people in cages is normal and that it is a valid response to what we call crime, right? And so we're given that story at such an early age that it's no wonder that, you know, we don't think about it really until we're, we're older and that we need to have a counter narrative that causes us to question and deconstruct the story that we had to begin with. Not to mention, and I, this is something I thought about as you were speaking, is that like when people are sent to prison, sent to jail, they are literally out of sight, out of mind. They're mm -hmm. moved out of mainstream society. So we really don't have any don't have any idea of what's going on there, or we didn't for a long time, I feel like, unless you were a part of the criminal justice system. But thanks to books like The New Jim Crow and mm -hmm. documentaries and stuff like that over the years, we're starting to be able to understand more and more what we're actually doing to people. Mm -hmm. And not just our people. And I think that that's the thing that maybe sticks with me the most, like when we start to have conversations about incarceration and incarcerated or formerly incarcerated folks. It's like, these are our people. Like you can take them away, you can put them in places away from us, but that doesn't mean that they're not a part of us still. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm hoping like that's a, um, a conversation we can have more fully, like, you know, in society at large, it's like, what does it mean for us to remember that these folks, the ones who you want to like take these punitive measures against, regardless of what crimes they're charged with are still ours. They still belong to us. Um, mm. But I'm really excited to like to hear what you and Dominique were able to get into by way of conversation. Like, I'm really excited to hear what he has to say and what his perspectives are as it relates to this conversation. So, yeah, let's get into that. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. Hey, Dominique, how you doing today? Pretty good, bro. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, man. Anytime Pat asks me to do something, I'm here. So let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, I feel like we're having like a super timely conversation um, as we think about, you know, the use of concentration camps, you know, in the U.S. Again, <laughs> not the first time. Yeah. Um, and talking about the border crisis. And I've been hearing people say that the problem that we're seeing with detention is so endemically tied to mass incarceration that if we fought mass incarceration, we could also be doing something about the detention centers. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I think we have to be very intentional about being intersectional in our approach to the work. And I think one of the ways that's crystallized is through the inherent interconnection between mass incarceration and what I like to call the war on immigration. 
because if you actually mm-hmm. juxtapose this war with the war on drugs, then you see there are direct parallels from the earmarked money that is funded to special task force uh, that are supposed to enforce the law in regards to this. You see the astronomical rise of people who are being targeted and incarcerated uh, And you also see the rollout of special legislation that is extremely punitive in its um, implementation, particularly against certain people groups. And then you also see the same type of profiteering that is happening on the back end through the incarceration of vulnerable people. So I, I always like to be intentional about drawing that connection and that parallel for people, because like you said, with concentration, concentration camps, this is not the first time we've seen these tactics uh, rolled out and implemented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's been really striking to me to think about what would it look like if we tried to think about these kinds of issues in a more comprehensive yeah. way. Right. So. It's not the the Hydra where you chop off one head and it's just another manifestation of the same mm-hmm. problem. You know, how do we get to the root of what we're talking about when we are basically talking about the abuses of human yeah. rights? Yeah. You know, what are what are your thoughts on that? So I think, I mean, for me, a lot of it starts with being students of history. Um, I think mm-hmm. when we know our history, then we can start to recognize the patterns. It's almost like a, a up in football, like if you're playing cornerback and you see, you've studied the film and you know a quarterback's tendencies, then when he tries to look you off, you won't be thrown off because you know that he's just looking you off to go to the receiver that he wants to go to. So you can jump the route mm-hmm. and get the interception. It's the same type way that I think that we as activists have to be students of history to be able to see, like, you know, when we talk about the way that private prisons are strategically located in this nation, if we look at this historically, we see that the same kind of strategic placements were used for Native American reservations in rural, sparsely populated communities where the injustice that happened there would be out of sight and out of mind for the average American. Then we see that that was replicated again through the placement of the Japanese internment camps, again, where the oppression that was happening would be out of sight, out of mind. And then we're seeing it manifest itself again through the strategic location and placement of private prisons. Then I think we know we're more informed about what does it look like to combat this because we can look to historical resistance efforts and how they were able to raise awareness around this and actually problematize it and create enough exposure for the broad majority of people to start to put a counter force for justice and um, the affirmation of the human dignity and life. Mm. Yeah, you know, as you mentioned that, I think I want I wonder, like a question emerges for mm-hmm. me where I'm thinking, how is it that so many Americans don't see these things as a problem? Right? Like this is I mean, well, the historical things I think more Americans can look at and be like, hey, we probably shouldn't have forced native people to walk the trail of students. We probably shouldn't have locked up 120,000 people just because of their ethnic identity. We probably shouldn't have done exactly. that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of people will say that about slavery too, yeah. right? Um, but when it comes to how we are locking up our own now, you know, in the present through mass incarceration and how immigrants are being treated, 
there doesn't seem to be that kind of consensus, you know, in our common sense. So what do you think are the, the, the barriers there or the stories that people are, have subscribed to that strengthen and support this system? Well, I think, you know, the critical thing to realize is that people never see how blatantly unjust something is in their lifetime. It's only with hindsight mm-hmm. um, that we're able to recognize, call out and denounce uh, oppression with such vigor. And I think, you know, one of the classic ways we saw this is that, you know, during the 1964, uh, when they were polling Americans around the civil rights movement, 63% said that the civil rights movement was pushing too fast. 58% said that uh, most were vi- most people in the civil rights movement were violent. <laughs> and then 58% said that they were hurting their own cause by not taking a more gradualistic approach to pushing towards. So, you know, we can all in hindsight, you know, almost, you know, 60 some odd years later say that's ridiculous. But in the midst of what was going on, this was what people was feeling. And part of the reason why they were feeling that way is because of the way that the media uh, manipulates stories in ways that makes people who are pushing for their human dignity and their freedom and their liberty, they, they, cast them in this sinister light to make them seem as if they're problematic people who are disturbing the peace. Um, And if they were only more complacent or more, to use the words of our brother Cornel West, more well-adjusted to injustice, then our Mm -hmm. society can continue to manifest in the way that it should uninterruptedly. And, you know, there there is a truth to that, though, uh, in the fact that... Mm -hmm. um, the resistance is birthed out of people who understand that there are people dying in the streets, that the blood that is flowing from our brothers and sisters uh, is something that we are implicated in as people who are contemporaries in society right now. We are all implicated in the fact that we're allowing little children to be stripped from their parents. And we are re-perpetuating or at least being complicit with um, something that is going to create intergenerational trauma for our Latino brothers and sisters for decades to come, generations to come. And when we don't understand the urgency of uh, what is unfolding under our watch, then we can become well-adjusted to injustice. And so mm-hmm. I think it's really important to understand that, you know, the Nazi, during, in Germany, uh, during the Nazi regime, most people were complicit. Most people were able to turn a blind eye because in some way, shape, or form, the status quo was benefiting them. Um, same mm-hmm. thing with the civil rights movement, same thing with slavery. Um, and, you know, even to take this back to scripture, you know, for me, we see this most explicitly talked about in the book of uh, Exodus and particularly with the story of Moses being born into the world. And we see that Pharaoh, out of his fear that one day the Egyptians would realize how numerous were they were and how they could go be powerful allies with someone else and come back and overthrow Egypt, he decided right. to intensify their oppression as a way mm-hmm. of keeping them subordinate. And what's really telling in that entire passage is that you don't see not one Egyptian stand up with a moral conscience and say that this is not right. 
that the fact that our prosperity is rooted in the dehumanization and financial exploitation of another people group is not fine. Even when he passes a, right. a infant side that said that all Hebrew boys must be killed just because of their ethnic identity, there's not one Egyptian that raises their moral voice. And so I think that's a very mm. telling passage that tells us how prone we are as the people in the majority to be able to turn the blind eye to oppression when it's not directly implicating us and those that we see ourselves as connected to. There was this uh, powerful interview that a lot of people were sharing from Professor Eddie Glaude Glaude, uh, earlier this week or last week, where he was basically saying that, you know, we can get so enamored with demonizing uh, President Trump and just casting all of the responsibility for oppression and what's going on on the border on the president. But the reality is that the president only has the power to implement um, the legislation that we give to him Mm. through our, our allegiance, even in the midst of what we know is unjust. And so it's so easy to look at the pharaohs and the Nebuchadnezzars and the Herods of the world and to say they are the reason why oppression reigns. Mm -hmm. But as citizens, their power is only what we give to them through our allegiance and our complicity to turn a blind eye to things that we know are unjust. And so I want to put it back on us because it's so easy to scapegoat someone else and just uh, to say, well, we were just following the law. We were just doing what we were told, the chain of command uh, old line. But I want to put the responsibility back on us as citizens uh, because we have ethical and moral choices to make. And when we are complicit with evil, we are making a choice. Yes. Um, yes. And we and we have to take that seriously. Yes. I love that you're putting the the responsibility back on us as the people. And what you said about how, you know, people say, well, I was just following orders, it betrays how much power we actually have. Because yes. you're admitting that if you haven't carried out the order, if you had if you hadn't obeyed, then <laughs> the order wouldn't have been carried out. It wouldn't have been executed. The the yep. plan would have failed without your obedience. And it yep. reminds me of what Gene Sharp says, that obedience is at the heart of political power. So mm-hmm. leaders can't do anything without our help. And so I feel like what you're saying is that we actually, as ordinary people, ordinary citizens participate in the business of mass incarceration and and for those who are concerned about what's happening with the border crisis and immigration right now and who understand this as a concentration camp system, that we participate in that system in some way. Is that what you're saying? Oh, many ways, a multitude of ways, some ways in which I think we are conscious of and other ways in which we are un- unbeknownst to us. And so a big part of what I feel uh, called to do is to reveal to the masses all of the ways that we are implicated, um, be it theologically, be it uh, financially, be it through our civic engagement and political um, political voting records. And so mm. we are thoroughly implicated. And if we really want to get free, we can't just wait for the right political candidate to emerge, but we have to take the onus on ourselves and actually be about the work through voting with our dollars, uh, voting at the ballot box, and voting with our ethics and our morals. Yeah. I wonder if we could get a bit granular there, too, because... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, what we're saying is like when 
when the ordinary citizen is a participant in a larger system of injustice, that means that if we want to do something about it, we have to change our participation. We can withdraw our participation. So how can we withdraw our participation from uh, these systems? Oh, man, there's a multitude of ways. Um, One of the ways that many people are implicated unbeknownst to them is through their entire their retirement funds and where they hold their IRAs. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people don't realize that um, the companies that they are uh, place parking their money in are turning around and investing in things that are going to garner more wealth. Um, And one of the primary ways that that has been happening is through these companies holding stock in private prisons. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I have a document that you can make public because you have access to it that kind of walks you through um, all of the companies who hold uh, stock in private prisons. And many times it's just not insignificant stock, but these are like one of the top 10 stockholders in these corporations, particularly Mm -hmm. Civcor and Geo Group. And so what we've seen is that there have been a couple of entities. Um, There was a school district in a state that did a deep research into this, and they decided that they were going to divest all of their pensions um, from this uh, IRA because it was holding stock within a private prison. Um, We've seen... Similar things where uh, there have been uh, schools because of Earmark, which is a food uh, preparation mm-hmm. corporation that is oftentimes contracted through private prisons um, because of the unethical standards of the food that are produced provided to incarcerated people. There have been two lawsuits where Aramark has been found to have maggots in the food that were given to incarcerated people. Uh, There have been a couple schools who've actually uh, called their administration to actually divest from their contracts with Aramarks who also provide um, food for cafeteria lunches and things like that. And so there are those kind of ways um, to divest. But another way that, uh, that can be divested is through um, our banking institutions. Mm. So many of the institutions that we bank in um, also have been investing in private prisons. And what that looks like, just to make it clear, mm-hmm. is that um, when we put our money into a bank, then they hold our money and then we gain interest. And part of the way that we gain interest from the money that they hold from us is that, again, they are making contracts out on the side right. with the money that they're holding for us to make more generate more income. Mm. And one of the the primary ways that they've been doing that, again, has been through the use of private prisons. So they give private prisons these loans to expand their enterprise, and then therefore they get uh, interest on the loan that they lent out, and then that interest comes back to us as consumers. Or So we're essentially financing the expansion of private prisons through holding our money in certain banking institutions. And so what's really important about that is, though, is that this is one of the ways that we can tangibly see the power that we have as consumers with voting with our dollars and then going up and raising our moral and ethical voice. So within the last year, 
there have been a lot of people, in part, hopefully, because of the work that I've done to try to highlight this, but the work that many people have been doing to make these connections, mm-hmm. who've been going to their banking institutions and demanding more transparency about where their money is being, where and how their money is being used. Mm-hmm. And as they've been demanding that transparency, they've seen that it's been being used to expand the private prison industry. And they have said that if you do not stop doing this, we are going to remove our dollars and go find a more ethical banking institution that we can place our money in. Mm. And because of that, we've seen three major private prisons within, I mean, sorry, three major banking institutions within the last years actually make the decision to stop investing in private prisons. Mm. Wow. So we saw Chase um, and we saw Bank of America. And then we just saw um, just this past week, uh, uh, TNC Bank uh, make the same decision. And so there is possibilities for us to actually raise our moral and ethical voice and hold people accountable through our dollars. It's a very tangible way. Wow, that is amazing. I'm going to be interviewing actually uh, Arik McVeigh soon. And he has a really interesting perspective on how parties work or how the two parties work together mm-hmm. in that this in the sense of like, you have the Republican Party right now that kind of pushes for these, it pushes for legislation and policies that that some of us would say are problematic, at least, right? right? Um, and then we vote in Democrats, but the Democrats don't actually always undo those policies. Mm-hmm. They just keep anything from developing further. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's, that's his perspective. So it's really interesting to think of like, we keep inching, we regardless like the folks that we are electing often are working for the benefit of corporations more than they are for people yeah and and i'm gonna push back against that a little bit just in this conversation and say democrats have actually created some of the most punitive legislation that has exacerbated Mm. our criminal justice system bill clinton was one of the most detrimental presidents we've ever had to the conversation about mass incarceration and on top of that Mm. when the conversation we were trying to have at the beginning where we were connecting mass incarceration to the war on immigration. Um, in 2010, there was a Demogra- Democrat from uh, West Virginia by the name of Robert Byrd, and he introduced a corre- congressional mm-hmm. directive that said every single night, ICE must maintain on average 34,000 people in their custody. And that's that's a mm-hmm. congressional directive that's been on the book since 2010, introduced by a, a Democrat. And it is a direct reason why 73 percent of people who are held in our nation, uh, detained in our nation for immigration offenses, are held within private prisons. Because you see that there is this direct correlation between punitive legislation and the amount of people who are being incarcerated um, mm-hmm. on on these particular issues that we're raising right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you making that point. And another thing that it, that it raises for me is thinking about the fact, like to me, it sounds like we're talking about a bakery, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, like you have to create a certain amount of product so that you can have a certain amount of revenue and stuff like that. It's so crazy to think about because the way that I think the average person is thinking about prisons and criminal justice is you would only have as many people in a building, you know, or in a prison that have committed crime. Like, why would you have a quota for beds to fill? 
And so to to clarify, just because I think we might have skipped that for a couple of listeners, uh, private prisons, when they come into a community, they come into a community and they usually sign a 10 year contract to be in that community. Usually the communities that come into are rural, uh, sparsely populated communities that are economically deprived. They're starving for jobs. And this prison is coming in promising employment opportunities. When they come in with the 10 year contract, Within the legal, um, uh, within the uh, actual wording of the contract, there are bed quotas that are written into the contract. And those bed quotas usually range between 100% occupancy rates to 70% occupancy rates. And so it says that every single night, at least, whatever the number in the quota is, must be that many percentage of the facility must be filled. And if it's not filled, then the private prison has the opportunity to sue the community that it came into as being in violation of contract. And yes, there are there are private prisons that have 100% occupancy rates. The state of Arizona has three of them. So it literally wow. says every single night, 100% of the facility must be filled. And if it's not, if we come do a check and it's not, then we could sue you as being in violation of contract. Like, that's crazy. And that's the thing that really distinguishes private prisons from state and federal facilities. Private prisons are for-profit entities. Their whole purpose is to make money. Um, and so that's really important. And when you talk about pretrial detention, uh, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, there is this belief in this nation, like what you were just talking about, that uh, people who are incarcerated are there because they've been convicted of a crime. Um, there is this belief right. that we are a nation where you are innocent until proven guilty. But the reality is that 75 percent of people in U.S. jails today are not there because they've been convicted of a crime. They're there because they're too poor to afford their bail. Oh, wow. Which means that we spend 14 billion dollars every year holding people in jail cells who have not been convicted of crime. That's 40 million dollars a day. Now, that's not to say that all of these people, once they ultimately do go before a judge, will be found innocent. But that is to say mm-hmm. that a number of them will. Uh, classic right. ex- example that we all should know about is Khalif Browder. Um, Khalif Browder, right. who was accused of stealing a book by coming home from a party with a friend, uh, was told that he was going to be taken downtown to be in- interviewed by the police. And he was going to be released after the, uh, they asked him a few questions. Well, they didn't release him, and they ultimately ended up incarcerating him for three years before he got a chance to go before a judge. And in the midst right. of that three years, he ended up being put into solitary confinement for six times and ultimately tried to take his life a number of different times. Oh and gosh, so yes. what we think is when we hear this, we hear, oh, well, yeah, pretrial detention, somebody gets locked up for a couple of days. It's not that big of a deal. Well, first, it is that big of a deal because they've actually done research that said that the average person, particularly the, the uh, working class American, cannot financially afford to be away from work more than three days because they will put their job in jeopardy. If they get fired, then that ultimately leads to housing insecurity, um, mental health um, impairments and homelessness um, and then food insecurity. 
And that's not even just for them, but you start to talk about for children um, and it starts to have this huge ripple effect. But this is one of the ways in which we keep our criminal justice system functioning the way that it does through the profiteering that happens through pretrial detention or through the pressure that's put on people um, to, to uh, waive their their legal rights and actually agree to plea bargains. So everybody should who's interested in this uh, should turn on Netflix and watch the uh, docu-series When They See Us about um, the, the case that happened in Central Park in New York. Another prime example of pretrial detention. These little boys were detained before they had a chance to actually go before a judge. And then because they were minors and they were coerced into confessions that they didn't even do, it led to many of them being incarcerated for you know a decade. Like It's crazy the way in which this system is all interconnected. But again, the root of it is profiteering. And you know, for me as a pastor, you know, scripture is explicit about this. It says that for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And what we're seeing mm-hmm. right now is that our criminal justice system is a byproduct of the love of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we so like I was saying, we talked we talked about kind of the the economic and the political, and I'm wondering there's a, a part of this, there's a social struggle, it mm-hmm. seems like, yep. there, that has happened. And what comes to mind is what a scholar named Jonathan Smucker talks about is how there are kind of two parts to this contest for power. A part of it is the institutional. And I feel mm-hmm. like the economic and the political fit in there is the, we're talking about policies and money and all this kind of stuff. But another part of that is the symbolic. And we touched on that some, Mm. you know, because we're talking about narratives that people believe and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But how do we combat those narratives? We know that the media and, you know, others, you know, others are kind of putting this, bolstering these ideas. How do we counter them, do you think? What do you think that struggle needs to look like? Yeah, so I think in regards to mass incarceration, one of the primary ways that you counter the narrative is through commissioning people into proximity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mass incarceration is, and, and, and even, you know, the war on immigration, they're fueled by fear. Um, and uh, political fear mongering and dehumanizing rhetoric that make us think that the person behind bars or that person who is seeking to cross the border is so different than me that we have no points of connection, that this person is so unethical, so immoral that I shouldn't even look at them as someone who is my neighbor. Um, They are so other than um, and it creates slowly but surely this kind of sliding scale of humanity. And Mm -hmm. and it's really rooted in this notion of meritocracy. And I really go after this aggressively in the book. And I talk about meritocracy as, you know, this belief that we really do get what we deserve. Um, And so if that person didn't commit that criminal offense, then they wouldn't be behind bars. Uh, If that person didn't illegally cross the border, then they wouldn't be in the cage down there. They, they wouldn't have their children separated from them. Um, and it creates this, this moral high ground that we always get to stand on and look down upon others and make assessments of people's lives without ever having to walk in their shoes. 
Um, and I think the thing that proximity does is that it slowly but surely starts to rehumanize people when we start to get close to them and touch them and hear their experience. And we see how much more in common we have with them than we we would ever imagined. Um, and so for me, I believe the key to this really is how do we get proximate to those people that the world has taught us to avoid? Um, those places and spaces that this world has taught us to do everything we can to actually go around, um, those are the places that I believe that we're actually called to be most intentional about going to. Because when we go to those places, we actually get to see beyond the rhetoric and we get to start to see that this is our brother and sister. This is our neighbor. This is someone else, again, to go to the ecclesial. Someone else made in the image of God who I have an inherent connection to. And there is some reason, rhyme and reason, to why they are here. Mm-hmm. Um May it be that, you know, they just really fell on a really hard circumstance or maybe, you know, they were a product of their environment in the way that they they were just so captivated by their local context and what they saw around them that they didn't they couldn't imagine another possibility for how how they could live their life. Um, So it doesn't mean that we need to explain away the offense or, you know, the the harm that they've done, but it at least brings us back to a square level of we are all human beings and we are all trying to do the best we can with the cards that we're dealt. And Uh I wasn't dealt the same kind of cards as this person, so I didn't have to make the same kind of choices this person made. But if I had enough compassion and empathy to potentially put myself in this person's shoes for a second, could I possibly make sense of what they tried to do? Yeah. I might say I ultimately would have made a different decision, but could I at least have a little bit of sympathy and empathy that could have rehumanize this person in a way that makes them not be a person that I have to do everything I can within my power to avoid them, shun them, and treat them as a second-class citizen for the rest of their life. So I think a lot of it really is about proximity. And I think a lot of it is understanding how our system works and who is locked up within our criminal justice system. And again, it's not who most people believe it is. It's not mass murderers, pedophiles. And like, there are people who have committed those offenses. And even those people, I think it's really important for us to not forever define a person by the worst thing they've ever done. Right. Um, if a person has committed a murder, they're not a murderer. They are still a person. They're a person who made a very grievous offense and they actually need to take some time to consider why they did that and actually deal with the root causes and then come back into society and be advocates against that choice that they made initially, but we can't forever brand people um, by the worst thing that they ever done. And, you know, I think we have the privilege of doing that because of meritocracy, because people don't know skeletons in our closet. Right. But if they did, <laughs> if they did, and we were forever labeled by the worst thing that they ever, we've ever done, uh, just have, think how different the world would be um, and how different people would perceive us and all the options and opportunities we have for socioeconomic advancement or thriving lives, how that would be stripped from us because our deepest, darkest darkest moment was exposed for the world to see. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing I love about the way that you're doing, going about this work is not just talking about why 
reform is the right thing to do, but it's the sensible thing to do. Yeah. Speaking about why it actually makes sense for us to rethink this whole thing and to do it differently. Could you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, I think not only is, you know, I often like to say the the system, not only is it immoral and unethical, but it's also fiscally irresponsible, too. Um, And I think one of the ways uh, we get to see this is, well, I already told you how much money we spend locking up people who haven't been convicted of a crime. But when you just take the two largest private prison companies in uh, our nation, uh, CIVCOR and the GEO Group, collectively, they made four billion dollars off of incarceration in 2017. Um, We have a criminal justice system that since 1971, um, when the war on drugs was launched, to 2012, we saw a 565% investment increase in our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about we don't have money for, you know, uh, social security or education, all these different things. We're telling the truth, but only partially telling the truth because we don't have money for those things because we're over investing in a broken system. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the ways that we saw this most clearly was that there was a study done here in Chicago, in my city, um, where they wanted to see who exactly was being incarcerated. Um, and it's a story called Million Dollar Blocks. And what they found was that in single city blocks, you could find that we were making over a million dollars worth of investment in the criminal justice system by just detaining people from that one single city block. Wow. And in Chicago, um, one of the most racially segregated uh, cities in the nation, um, the way that that played out was that those million dollar blocks were all on the south and the west side of the city where uh, black and brown people lived. There was not one single million dollar block within the in the loop in Chicago uh, where the more affluent uh, population lives or on the north side, which is uh, more um, Caucasian population lives. Um, mm-hmm. But in Chicago, there were eight hundred and fifty one million dollar blocks mm-hmm. in one city. Eight hundred and fifty one blocks were where there was over a million dollars worth of investment uh, to incarcerate people from a single city block. And they were all on the black and the brown parts of the city. Yes. Wow. And so if people are interested in that, they can just Google million dollar blocks. And there's a whole in-depth study that breaks this down and shows you maps and all these things that talks about how we can more justly reinvest our money that has been going into a broken system to create communal flourishing and thriving. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Okay, this is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What keeps you going in this work? What what makes you hopeful that this can happen? Um, you know, unlike a lot of other social issues, um, there's actually a lot of momentum around uh, criminal justice reform right now. Where there's actually a lot of victories that have been happening within uh, criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. and so I think you know what what keeps me going in this particular fight is the fact that we have finally reached a point where there's bipartisan support for criminal justice reform. 
both Republicans and Democrats acknowledge that we have a fundamentally broken system. Um, there is an acknowledgement that the war on drugs for most people was an utter failure um, and that you can't incarcerate yourself out of addiction. Um, and there is also, you know, that while well, there has been this groundswell from the everyday people, from citizens that have moved against um, capital punishment and said that ultimately, you know, this belief that certain people are beyond redemption and all we can do is kill them. Um, that's not something that we want to be about as uh, U.S. citizens. Um, you know, so we saw within the last two years, 10 states moved towards abolishing the death penalty. Now, unfortunately, our federal administration decided to overstep that and reinstitute it on the federal level. But, but we see a resistance rising and we see people saying that we don't want to be complicit with the system that is hallmarking America as, uh, you know, a nation that has more people locked up in our country right now than any country in the history of the world. Wow. People are saying not on our watch. We have a nation that represents 5% of the U.S. population, I mean, of the world's population, but 25% of its incarcerated population. But what we don't fully grasp is the fact that right now in our nation, there are more prisons, jails, and detention centers than there are degree-granting institutions. Wow. So let me say that another way. There are literally more places in the U.S. today where you can get locked up than you can get a college education. That is crazy. And as people are coming into an awareness of that, we are seeing people raise their ethical and moral voice and say, I don't want to be complicit with this type of system. Mm -hmm. This is inherently broken and we can do better. And I think a part, a big part of key, what keeps me going is helping people come to that revelation and helping them mobilize in a way that tangibly makes a difference for the lives of the incarcerated. Because all too often, those are impoverished uh, people, the least of these, who are there uh, because of forces um, that have preyed upon them and they need advocates. They need people who are concerned with human dignity and flourishing and the belief that people who've made mistakes can come out and actually be productive members of society that help make our communities better places rather than people that we must marginalize and subordinate as second-class citizens for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, Dominic, this has been really amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I always, always want to, you know, be in spaces uh, with other people who are trying to move for needed social change. And it's always an extra benefit when it's one of my homeboys from my, my home city of Atlanta. So, you know, any, anytime, any place, I rock with you, bro. I uh, appreciate it. No, it doesn't have to be So, Alicia, what stood out to you from listening to Dominique talk about the incarceration and deportation system? Um, I think a number of things stood out to me, but the thing that, like, definitely stood out the most was um, Dominique's, like, pushing this premise of a, quote, sliding scale of humanity. Like, that was just, like, a really thing, a really interesting thing for me to, like, hold and to think about. Like, how do we create these sliding scales? Like, how do we you know, value the actions 
um, of one person of, of, in the true, not even just actions, but choices of some people over others and then criminalize some things while for other people to engage in those same things is like permissive. It's just a really, yeah, like that, I think that's maybe what stuck with me the most. Um, like how are our humanities tiered? Um, and out of oh, that right. tiering, like how do we like, suffer violence? Yeah, and you see that in the examples that he mentions of the um, boarding schools that we put natives in and and um, in the internment camps that Japanese were, Japanese people were put in, and all of these, all of these are dehumanizing uh, contexts for people, and we see it in the Trump administration's rhetoric about immigrants now, calling them, you know, an invasion, an infestation, mm-hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terminology like that is particularly concerning. I mean, there's like all this theory around it, but like when we start moving in places where not only we tear humanity, but like start utilizing language that de- actively dehumanizes people, we get that much closer to the place of extermination. We get that much closer to like having active genocide. And like, this is a yeah. thing that concerns me like about, you know, incarceration in all of its forms, whether it's internment, whether it's like, you know, taking people away and like, you know, housing them elsewhere after they've committed what we perceive to be crime. Um, these things undermine communities. They break people down. And that's the point of like, you know, of genocide, right? Like of these projects, like where social groups, whether they be grouped around like, you know, national identity, ethnicity, race, economic standing, like the point of those projects is to break people down and people are being broken down by these systems. And so, yeah, like it's just, it's, it's a thing of concern for me. I think it's the thing that should be concerning to all of us. Right. Well, of course. And that's exactly why I wanted to have this conversation with Dominique. And we actually moved this episode up on the schedule. We, we had a bunch really? of others. We, we had a bunch of others scheduled. And once we did, because we have enough, we have enough content to last till next year, but we really do. Y'all. We said, you know, we need to have this conversation because this problem is urgent because we are way further down the line to genocide than a lot of people seem to realize or want to admit, especially in this culture Mm -hmm. where it's almost like you're not supposed to say anything that says we as the American people are, you know, participating in a system of injustice in that way. It's, you know, it, it it bucks against our American exceptionalism. And so we live in a society where even making these comparisons to these previous atrocities is offense so offensive to people that they can't actually look at what's in front of them. And so, um, you know, the thing that really stood out to me and why I wanted to have this conversation is that Dominique is telling us that first off this issue that we're seeing the border crisis is connected to our larger tradition of incarceration, of being a carceral state. Mm -hmm. If we fought incarceration, we could do something about all of these (laughs) forms of incarceration Right. Mm-hmm. And all of these forms of de- of um, literally attacking people's human rights or uh, these forms of taking people's human rights away. <clears throat> and he's identified these different ways for us to do it, like looking at where are you banking? Is your bank doing business with the mass incarceration system? Where are your retirement mm-hmm. funds being held? And where are your mm-hmm. stocks and investments? Because 
you know, at the base of this entire project of doing hope and heart pills, it doesn't have to be this way, all this stuff is the idea that we write history together through our cooperation with, mm-hmm. with the government or with systems of injustice or through us deciding that we together are going to create a new normal. And so if we can identify the ways that we are participating in these systems, then we can change them through refusing to cooperate anymore and by building a new normal together. Absolutely. And I think I really appreciate like, you know, both he and you bringing us back to the place where we consider like our involvement, like what we can do. Mm -hmm. Because like, I mean, what you're saying about banking, like the bank that I use, like, you know, has been found to, to be in support of like, of private prisons, Mm -hmm. which means they support like these systems that take our people away from us. Right. Um, and so I've, I have ethical questions that I have to ask myself yeah. around, you know, whether or not I'm going to bank with them and like, what do alternatives look like? Yeah. And that's what I've been trying to figure out. I mean, I've recently moved. Um, and so I have different options available to me, but I've been in, in deep thought about this for some time. It's like knowing my bank's role in upholding the system. Like, what does it mean for me to take my, my little bit of money? Mm-hmm. It's not much, but like <laughs> if a number of us take our little bits, like that's how we make a difference. The same is true for like calling attention to to companies, right? Yeah. You know that they they yeah. supply these places with technologies. Uh-huh. Amazon, if we want to get into it, is like right. one of the biggest, biggest, right. biggest uh, like offenders here. Right. Like you know through its web services right. as well through of extended different technologies. Right. They specifically have helped you know some of these immigration systems as well as um, like, I think it's like Department of Homeland Security they've worked with um, and, um, and a number of these private prisons. Yeah. Like what are we doing to divest from like getting our, our little prime package in two days? Like we don't have to give them our money. Right. It's it, not to say that things won't be difficult right. and we don't have to figure out alternatives, but it's worth it. I think yeah. for us at least start processing through what we could do. Yes, of course. And I think that this leads us into, you know, this new segment that we've been talking about is trying to leave our listeners with questions. And I think that one of the obvious questions is one that you've already raised that you're asking yourself, you know, like, um, what, where can I bank instead, you know, uh, since, since my bank is implicated? And I, I have that same question. I need to look at where, where my, I mean, I did the interview and I still haven't looked at is my bank participating? Which I'm sure that it probably is. Because I bet. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, wait. I think Chase pulled out. Didn't Chase pull out? Perhaps, maybe. But I, I bank. I don't know if my bank is still there. I need to like continue to research. But yeah, like we can ask these questions, and I think perhaps we're turning this question on y'all. Like, what can you do? Like, think about your banking. Think about where your retirement is held. Think about where you shop and what products you buy. Yeah. Do these organizations, do these institutions, do these corporations uphold these systems? Do they actively lend support right. to, you know, the mass deportation and incarceration and detention? Yeah. And then perhaps spend also spend some time thinking about what are you gonna do? Like if these places that you've done business with. If they're going to continue in their commitment to uphold the system, what are you going to do? What? Yeah, what are you going to do? Exactly. No, I, I think that that's the most important question right now. Gonna run, 
Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at the Andre Henry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, aliciatcrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace. Thank <laughs> you.